Many organizations struggle when it comes to communicating and realizing their business strategies. Many workers don't even understand the strategies in their own company. Welcome to the North Star with William Ulrich. Find out where your organization stands, what you might be doing right, and where you can improve. Now, here's your host, William Ulrich. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, William Ulrich. You're listening to the North Star. Feel free to contact me by email, LinkedIn, or at my website, tacticalstrategygroup.com. Today, we'll be discussing incorporating AI and cognitive computing into business strategy with my guest, Phaedra Buenodiris. You can find reference material related to this show, including a number of publications and studies from Phaedra on the North Star Radio Show page at my website, tacticalstrategygroup.com. Pedro Boinadiris is a fellow with London-based Royal Society of Arts, business transformation lead for IBM's responsible AI consulting group, and on the leadership team of IBM's Academy of Technology. Pedro is co-founder of WomenGamers.com and currently pursuing a PhD in AI and ethics at University College Dublin Smart Lab. She won the United Nations Women of Influence in STEM and Inclusivity Award and was recognized by Women in Games International as one of the top 100 women in the games industry. She's authored multiple studies and publications, including Serious Games for Business. A number of her works may be found, again, on my North Star Radio Show page at my website. Phaedra may be reached at P, I'm going to spell her last name, P-B-O-I-N-O-D-I at us.ibm.com. Welcome, Phaedra. Thank you so much. I'm so pleased to be on your show. Thanks. Uh, before we move on today, I want to acknowledge the passing of our friend and colleague, Peter Fingar. Uh, he was originally scheduled to appear with you on the show today. Uh, we both knew Peter well, had multiple uh, books published through his publishing house. Uh, I know you've also written with him. Uh, we send out our best wishes to his family. Did you, you work closely with Peter. Did you want to share any thoughts? He was truly an amazing human being. He was not just a brilliant mind in cognitive computing and AI, but he was also so warm and encouraging. I mean, he really inspired me to write my first book. So I, I will dearly miss him. I know the, uh, the website posts that we did um, received uh, uh, all kinds of tremendous comments and positive thoughts about him. So uh, we all wish him and his family, his family well. Uh, so, Phaedra, uh, you have an interesting backstory, and I'd like you to share that today regarding uh, your move from games to AI to ethics. Would you like to share that story with us? Yes. Thank you so much. Um, so, I was lucky enough to be born into a family of technophiles. In fact, both of my parents immigrated to the United States from Greece in order to study engineering at the University of Florida in Gainesville, which is where they met. And uh, my sister and I were, were just, we were brought up in a house where we were always encouraged to play around with computers, to take them apart, put them back together, uh, code on them. And of course, we gravitated towards games, not just playing them, but designing them for each other and for our friends. And mind you, this was at a time where you couldn't find a pamphlet about how to design your own video game. So it was, it was back in the day. And uh 
we went on to to go in our, our various careers and studies. I ended up studying mathematics and my sister ended up studying um, uh, engineering. And uh, we ended up eventually starting a company called WomenGamers.com. And we created this because we played games, our friends played, our cousins played, but we'd go to most gaming magazines and websites and they just weren't targeting women at all. So uh, we created this platform. We started to, to do consulting to game studios and publishers who wanted to, to reach out to women, to target women. And we also started the first scholarship program for women to pursue degrees in game design and development here in the United States. So I've, I've always been a, a real devotee of digital tech inclusion, again, starting in games. And then what happened about, you know, 10 years or so into this is there was a big shift in the games industry and suddenly everybody was starting to talk about the casual gamer and the mass market. And I decided to go back to my alma mater to pursue an MBA so I could learn more about going after VC funding, possibly starting my own studio. And whilst I was there, I did a whole bunch of case competitions, which is when a company will go to your business school with a real life challenge. And the students have overnight to come up with an idea and then they pitch the idea the next day. So I was on my sixth one and IBM was sponsoring the challenge. And the challenge was that they had business process management software and they were looking for innovative ways of explaining it to non-technical people. And at the time, I had no idea what the heck business process management was, but they handed each each team a stack of papers about yay thick, I'm holding up my hand about three inches. And as I'm reading it, I'm thinking, these are our strategy games, right? Being able to tweak different business rules, seeing how it affects your broader ecosystem. You could have competing models, you could collaborate around a model. And so I pitched this idea to my teammates and... Um, uh, the next morning, we ended up presenting a game, a real-time strategy game to help explain business process management to people. And unbeknownst to me, one of the judges was a VP of strategy for IBM. She pulled me aside and said, I want to fund this right now. Can you make it for me in three months? And I'm thinking, oh, my God, it takes years to make a really good video game. Like, how do I pull this off? And she says, don't worry, it's just a proof of concept to see if a game can explain a complex system like this to people in such a way where they really get it. So uh, I ended up interning at IBM while I was finishing up my MBA, developing this, this, seri this serious game with an amazing team. And we launched it for free via IBM's academic initiative. And in six months, we had over a thousand schools worldwide starting to use this game as part of their core curriculum to teach business school students. Then the CMVP gave me more funding. And in effect, we started to, uh, to, to curate our very first serious games program within IBM to help explain some of the complex systems which IBM sells. And again, at, at all along this journey, I had continued to be invested in digital tech inclusion, and in particular with respect to education. So I did a, a whole bunch of, you know, ongoing volunteer work with, with different K through 12 schools in particular, and just had some, some monumental epiphanies with respect to the future of education whilst working with some of these in particular disadvantaged high schools. Like um, 
There's this one high school in, in Texas we were working with, a teacher named, named David Conover, who was teaching computer science, but through serious games. And he reached out to me and he says, hey, I'm, I've got the Center for Disease Control is sponsoring a theme for my class. They've asked us to design and develop a game that introduces kids to pathogens and pandemics, to this idea of how it works and what happens. So my kids have reskinned Minecraft such that you can fly a nanobot through human body. And when the nanobot meets with the pathogen, we want to be able to communicate with an AI. So we just, we started to work with his class. It, that's actually a whole nother talk you and I could do at, at some point on, you know, what, what transpired the epiphanies around education and the culture of the classroom. But it, it really helped to demonstrate how games and pop culture can introduce kids to concepts like artificial intelligence and in particular tech ethics. So, all the, to wrap up the story, what I'm doing now as a business transformation leader in trustworthy AI is I'm helping clients become more responsible curators of the technology, more responsible cur curators of artificial intelligence. And in effect, why I was inspired to make this jump from the work I was doing both in games as well as in serious games was I, I mentioned I've always been passionate about digital tech inclusion and in particular social justice. And when the news came out in 2018 about Cambridge Analytica, I was truly inspired to learn as much as I possibly could about this space. And so I was encouraged by some dear friends of mine uh, to go and pursue this, this PhD through, through the European Union on AI and ethics and uh, met some like-minded people within IBM and got connected. And now I'm part of this practice working directly with clients. So it's it's been quite the journey. Um, can you just give us a minute on uh, Cambridge Analytica, a little a background on that? Yes, in effect, I mean, if you're unfamiliar with what happened in 2018 with respect to, to Cambridge Analytica, this is, is certainly your homework assignment. I, I'm not going to delve into it too deeply, but in effect, uh, this was uh, one of the reasons why there have been, you know, congressional testimonies with respect to what happened in 2018 and how data was being used within Facebook in a way that was not transparent and not explainable in order to, to manipulate people. So mm, okay. that, that is something that, that, again, certainly inspired me to learn a lot more about the space. Okay. So you mentioned, you did mention uh, your role. Uh, you have multiple roles at IBM. You talked about trustworthy AI. Uh, you're also in IBM's Academy of Technology. Did you want to share a little more on, on your role at IBM? Yes. Uh, IBM's Academy. So first of all, my role, again, is working directly with clients uh, on the aspects of trustworthy AI. And my role as a leader within uh, the IBM Academy of Technology is this is a group of, um, of passionate technologists that work on different kinds of initiatives that help steer the company in new directions and in new ways. Uh, from whether it's, you know, responsible systems and computing with the work that we're doing on education initiatives uh, to things like, you know, we're working on a, an initiative right now through the academy on how to train pet practitioners to develop truly explainable AI. And what does that mean in terms of, of design and, and interface? So it's, it's 
really cool. It's a really cool program within the corporation. Okay. Um, and you did tell us about womengamers.com. That's still active? It is no longer active. So if ah. you actually Googled womengamers.com, I have no idea what you would get. I mean, in effect, when I ended up joining IBM and my sister ended up joining actually a VR company, she's an engineer for a VR company mm. developing games. She actually just wrapped up a horror game. <laughs> uh, we ended up closing up the, the, the company so that we could focus on our careers. Ah, Okay. Uh, so just a little more on uh, some definitions before we jump into the rest of the conversation. A uh, little, little bit of background for um, folks on the listening in on cognitive computing and then also artificial intelligence. Yeah, so there is a difference. So AI enables machines to learn and act from data and improve over time. So AI is, think of it as a big circle. AI within this circle encompasses machine learning and deep learning algorithms that are composed of neural networks. Today, the kinds of applications that use AI are in things like Amazon's Alexa, computer vision systems for driverless cars, video games like Call of Duty or Far Cry, where you've got NPCs or non-player characters that can respond to natural stimuli, you know, applications in the field of finance, uh, retailers like Target and Amazon are using them for predictive anal analytics. Uh, so, so that's sort of the larger AI scope. Now, cognitive computing is a subset within AI, and although the underlying purpose of both of these technologies is to, in effect, simplify tasks, the difference is in the approach. So AI is used to augment human thinking and solve complex problems. Um, it concentrates more on working to provide more accurate results, but cognitive thinking, on the other hand, is more about mimicking human behavior and adapting to human reasoning. So, for example, uh, focused on things like speech recognition, sentiment analysis, risk assessment, behavioral recommendations, et cetera. Okay. Um, good. So, I think they are both playing a huge role as, as we're going forward. So, um, can you give us um, then your thoughts on, in terms of tying together some of the things that you work on and have worked on? Uh, with games, AI, and then also ethics, which we're going to talk a lot more about later. Yes. Yeah, so, so starting off with games, so some some salient points. Um, today, if you can believe it, nearly 227 million Americans play video games. That's two-thirds of adults and three-quarters of the kids under 18 playing video games weekly. And before you get into your mind that, you know, this is like a holy male thing that is not true. In effect, it's half female and half male across all ages. The average age of the gamer is 31 years old. As I detailed in my opening, like games can be incredibly effective at explaining complex systems. So when thinking about engaging design and motivating people in applications, there's techniques that can be used from games that can be used to enhance experiences. But it is really critical to ensure that people have a sense of self-direction based on autonomy, mastery, and purpose. And we'll get into that more in, in more detail in a bit. Today, AI is being used within games to do things like power, as I mentioned, non-player characters, enhance the experience, 
One big topic of conversation is using artificial intelligence to mitigate toxicity in multiplayer games, right? Which is a massive problem today. And not just within massively multiplayer online games, but certainly social media, right? And what we're doing is we're actually working on an effort to enable game developers to use something called dynamic causal modeling that will in effect map data sets that are being curated by these game developers to, to, to map the data sets to desired gamer behaviors, desired gamer behaviors. So in other words, flipping the narrative. In effect, what we're hoping this will do is enable game publishers to use AI to augment the kinds of behaviors and gamers that they want to see more of, like make a community more inclusive, less toxic, and more fun to be a part of. A third point on games. <laughs> we can use games to introduce STEM to kids. I talked about medical Minecraft as an example, right? Uh, some other examples from that same classroom out in Texas, right? Is they took, uh, they were asked, one of their homework assignments was take an old toy and make it a smart toy that solves a problem within your community. And they took, you remember, Bill, the, the Hungry Hungry Hippos? You know that game, you're pressing the lever and I, you're getting I your hippo it. to eat marbles. <laughs> <Nope>. <laughs> so, so they took that and they bought a used brainwave monitoring device off of eBay. And they rigged the hat with, our, the, sorry, the um, hippos with Arduinos such that the only way that you could get your hippos to eat the marbles without your hands is by going into a semi-meditative state. And I asked the kids, like, you know, what what's what are you doing with this game and they said like i was crazy i were training jedi and i asked them well how are you solving a problem within your community and they told me that they were play testing this toy this new smart toy to kids going through chemotherapy at the dell children's hospital out in austin which i thought was was just again tremendous now Game publishers like, you know, Epic Games, uh, they have now curated massive mega grants for teachers that, uh, in essence, you're getting tens of thousands of dollars as a K through 12 teacher to curate curriculum using their gaming engine to teach anything in Steam. Like if you want to introduce, for example, sustainable energy or um, engineering methods or architecture, you can use do so using their gaming engine and get funding for such a thing, which I think is is really awesome. So just a okay. few points on games. <laughs> great, great setup. Um, I'm going to take a quick break. You're listening to the North Star. I'm William Ulrich. We're discussing incorporating AI and cognitive computing into business strategy with my guest, Phaedra Boino-Diris. And uh, we'll be right back after a short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you having trouble articulating your strategic objectives? Not sure if your program investments are aligned to your strategic vision? Wondering why your six, seven, and eight-figure program investments seem to evaporate into thin air, even as your business teams are left to add more people, take on more risk, and take heat from unhappy customers? Tactical Strategy Group's William Ulrich can help ensure that your strategic objectives translate into sustainable, successful investments. For more information, visit our website at tacticalstrategygroup.com. 
Business news and discussions are always changing. In order to stay ahead of the game, sometimes you need to be a follower. You can follow the Voice America Business Channel on Twitter at VoiceAMBusiness. Again, that's at VoiceAMBusiness. And stay current. Your organization is spending seven, eight, or even nine figures annually on transformation programs. And you're questioning the bottom line business value. You were told not to worry. We've engaged the best system integrators, and they said all is well. Has your IT organization become a black box where money goes in, but nothing comes out? Tactical Strategy Group's William Ulrich has seen every side of this story, from upfront happy talk to painful post-mortems. Find out what's really going on. Visit tacticalstrategygroup.com and ask about TSG's Transformation Oversight Service. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to the North Star. If you have a question or comment about the program, please send an email to wmmulrich at tsgconsultinginc.com. That's wmmulrich at tsgconsultinginc.com. Now, back to the North Star. Here again is William Ulrich. Welcome back to the North Star. I'm William Ulrich, and we're discussing incorporating AI and cognitive computing into business strategy with my guest, Phaedra Boynodiris. Uh, Phaedra, before the break, we were talking about games. You wrote a book called Serious Games for Business. You want to just give us a, a quick uh, snapshot of that? Yes, it, it really helped to, first of all, set up the definitions between what is the difference between serious games and gamification, and how is it that different kinds of industries might be able to use both of these, uh, whether it's to incentivize or motivate you know, their employees or their, their clients, or to use them collectively to solve different kinds of problems within their org. So that was something that I, I wrote with Peter Fingar's help. Ah, great. Excellent. Um, so how do we see the gaming concept then playing a role as business leaders look to roll out AI in their organizations? Oh, goodness. Well, I, I did mention a couple of the, uh, the examples with respect to education. Mm-hmm. But in truth, you know, I mentioned that serious games already can be incredibly adept at explaining complex systems. You layer in things like artificial intelligence and you can have a very powerful tool that may help you to get psychological buy-in to all kinds of complex systems that may require humans to be bought in, right? For example, like um, uh, strategic execution, tactical operations, for another more concrete example, like a disaster preparedness game. What might that look like if it's integrating with real data and real processes? Okay. Um, And do you see uh, more of a prevalence in in terms of, who you're working with or who IBM is generally working with in terms of industry sectors, um, any particular industry sector, uh, government, defense, or, or you know, financial services, or, or uh, do you see an emphasis in terms of uh, some, some of these industries being out in front of others? With respect to serious games in yeah, particular? Yeah, with respect to games and, and also AI. You um, know, I, I haven't, I've been... I've, my career has pivoted away from the games and serious game space ah. and more specific to AI right okay. now. So I can't, I don't really feel like I can speak to that. How, right how about now. we shift the conversation to AI then just specific? Okay, sure, okay. sure. So, um, so you, you might ask, for example, you know, specifics on what, how we should be thinking about AI technology, right? It is a truly 
powerful tool that we really need to, to host a smarter conversation about with respect to things like how it's being used, education, ethics, society, uh, skills, you know, how do we set up our organizations in, in order to really make use of such a powerful tool. Um, so, and in truth, today, we're just hitting the very tip of the iceberg in terms of AI implementations. So just some statistics for you. So about 88% of corporate AI initiatives are still stuck in the testing phase, right? There's trouble hiring talent. There's trouble trusting the results. There's no quantification of the business impact. Mm. And the truth is, AI can help capture significant gains across the value chain, right? Early adopters are already creating competitive advantage. And I'll just give you a few examples from different industries. Like in energy, AI is being used to cut 10% in national electricity usage by using deep learning to predict power supply and demand. In education, virtual teaching assistants can answer 40% of students' routine questions. In healthcare, there's a $300 billion possible savings in the United States alone using machine learning for population health forecasting. Like, it goes on and on and on. And I what think was that savings number again? That was $300 billion okay. possible <laughs> savings. Number. Yeah. It's a big number, a big number. Like in retail, right, 50% improvement of assortment efficiency, 20% stock reduction using deep learning to predict purchases. So, again, a truly powerful and disruptive tool that, you know, if you can get in and adopt early, I, I think can give you a tremendous amount of strategic advantage. Now, we're seeing those numbers, but then on the other hand, you said that, that we're still at the tip of the iceberg. Is that right? Yes, yes. And again, it is because they're stuck. They're getting stuck in the testing phase, right? I mentioned they can't find the talent or they're having trouble with respect to trusting the results, or there's little quantification of the business impact. Mm -hmm. And so what my work is currently is very focused on the trust aspect. Like how do we address things like trust? What does it take to earn trust in artificial intelligence? Because in truth, it's not a technological challenge. It's a socio-technological challenge. And because it's a socio-technological challenge, it must be addressed holistically. You know, some of your stats uh, with, with over a number of shows over the last few weeks uh, are echoing some of the um, challenges and weaknesses in, in just delivering uh, projects and strategies in general in companies. It, you know, I, I wouldn't expect them to do a whole lot better with AI than they're doing maybe with some other kinds of things. So uh, I, I think there's a there's a bigger picture here. Are, are there any, um, I'm, I'm asking this because I had a, a conversation earlier this um, uh, this year with, with someone on AI and, and the um, the inability to, well, I, I would guess I say the, uh, the challenges they have with a lot of the existing data that's out there that organizations want to use uh, some, a lot of structured data, right? They want to use to do a lot of what you're talking about, to do it better and use, use AI on, on that data. Do you see some of those issues when you're, um, you're out there? Indeed, indeed. And that's why I mentioned it's, it has to be addressed holistically because even when you're talking about data, again, it's a socio-technological challenge. So mm -hmm. what, what do I mean by all of this, right? When I talk about holistics, uh, you need to be thinking about um, people, tools, and processes. So when thinking about people, uh, what is the, the culture of your organization? How diverse 
is the group of data scientists that you're employing in order to curate what you're hoping is going to be truly representative data. Mm. That's a really key and important point. Um, you know, do you have, for example, a, a center of excellence around AI for your organization where you're sharing the best practices? Have you incorporated design thinking so you can be thinking about what are the potential secondary and tertiary effects and impacts of this AI model on the population? Who's not being considered here? Who's not at the table? And then how do you design in order to mitigate for any potential either individual or societal harm. That's people, that's culture, right? The second bucket I mentioned was tooling. Tooling includes things like, you know, AI engineering practices. What are the kinds of tools that you can use in order to be able to look at a data set, be able to mine for bias and flag that bias? What are the kinds of tools that you can use in order to render that AI model transparent and explainable for different populations of people, for different kinds of users? Are there tools to, in order to test the level of robustness of the model so that it can't be hacked, right? So that you can't game the system in order to get a better result that advantages one group of people over another group of people. Uh, we've also created methods, like we've got something called the scaled uh, data science method, where in effect it combines all of these things. It combines design, AI engineering, ethics, in order to keep track of the entire life cycle of the AI model from the beginning to the end and remind people, here's the stakeholders that need to be involved as part of the conversation. Here's the kinds of deliverables that you need to, to have in order to make sure that you can do this at scale and people will really trust it. And then there's governance, which is, what is it that you're going to promise, not just to your organization, not just to your employees, but to the world with respect to what standards you're going to live by for this AI model? And that's where things like developing an AI ethics board for your organization, mm -hmm. making sure that it's indeed diverse and inclusive, that there's protections for whistleblowers, et cetera, you know, that that is in place, um, you know, again, to help with respect to compliance. Yeah, and um, the center of excellence, is that where you would see a lot of these uh, best practices and, and uh, the tooling knowledge expertise, would you see that centered around that in the center of excellence? It, yes, and uh, sharing of experiences, like mm -hmm. sharing of things like, you know, how do you approach things like explainable AI? What are the, what are the best practices for where and when and how you tell something, tell somebody an AI model is being used and how do you explain, here's the data sets that are being used. Here's the methods and expertise that were being used to, to have this AI model come up with its decision. Also, pushing and insisting on things like feedback loops. You don't like the data set that was used. It's not fresh enough. It's not representative enough of you give your feedback and get timely results and input back from the organization saying, okay, we received this. Here's when we're going to get back to you. Like all of these kinds of things, all of these kinds of learnings are shared within a center of excellence. Where, where do you see, um, there's some great points on data methods, feedback loops. Where do you see the maturity out there today with 
organizations that um, may be doing this well versus, you know, maybe the, the other, other group that's, that's not, that doesn't get this yet? It's, it's truly an excellent question. I think there's a tremendous amount of interest, a lot of interest in this, in this space, especially from uh, CEOs across different industries, but there's still quite a long way to go. There's a quite a long way to go. Um, for example, we had an IBV study called Advancing Ethics Beyond Compliance, where we interviewed over 1,200 different execs, again, across industries. Barely half of the CEOs viewed AI ethics as a CEO-level responsibility, if you mm. can believe that. Barely mm. half. Four out of five directors say AI ethics issues are a board-level responsibility, at least to a moderate extent, but only 45% of the directors say they are fully prepared to tackle these issues. That's why I say mm. we've got a long way to go. Yeah. And it may change the profile of who one's looking at for your directors as well at some point, right? Exactly. And just, again, getting people in the habit to be thinking about things like, how is the AI being used and to what purpose? Who's being left out? What happens when the model gets the answer wrong, which may be 20% of the time if it's a neural network? Do we tell people when an AI is being used to make a decision that directly affects people's lives? Do we explain what data sets are being used? Do we give them recourse when they want to, to challenge the, the model? And then finally, uh, are we educating people about the impact of this technology and how to harness it irrespective of whether they self-categorize as coders or not? I think that's something that, that is really, really key. So if, if I'm a customer and, and there's some stories out there of um, you know, AI doing certain things that, that impacts customers in, in not necessarily a positive way. So if I'm a customer at one of these organizations, um, you're, you're saying, are, are you saying that, that those customers should have a better understanding of exactly what's, what's going on here? Is that yeah, fair? Yeah, absolutely. To be able to, to ask their bank, for example, if their bank is using an AI model to determine what percentage interest rate they get on their loan, mm -hmm. to ask the bank for a fact sheet for transparency, for explainability. What data sets did you use in order to come up with this decision? I want to make sure that it is fair towards me, especially if I'm from a historically underrepresented group, right? To have some level of standard that says, yep, okay, I can trust this bank versus another. I want to go back to... Uh uh, the maturity of some of these efforts and the being stuck in testing is 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 a is a story that people can tell with a lot of different uh, different projects and programs over the years. It, to me, my experience is that if if people are getting stuck in testing, something probably didn't go well earlier in the cycle. Whether it's the design or uh, you know maybe maybe it's the the development work, maybe it's the the sheer uh, the requirements uh, in terms of understanding what they're working with, maybe just uh, the transparency into the business in terms of what, what they're actually dealing with. So do you see, um, you know, again, I see people stuck in testing. And if you sort of backtrack up that ladder, you start to find out, well, they didn't do this well, they didn't do that well, they didn't do this well. Uh, have you had any insights into exactly where sort of things take a left turn or a right turn in terms of these efforts? 
Yeah, I, I would say, you know, one of the big concerns is the data. What data was being curated in order to train the model? Is it trusted? That's why I keep going back to like trust, trust. Is yeah. it trusted? Is it truly representative? Um, and also, can you quantify the business impact? Will you be able to quantify the business impact? So we've actually developed things. I, I, I talked a lot about trust in the data and using tools and culture, but just a word on business impact. We've actually developed some uh, a framework called Enterprise Design Thinking for Data and AI, where in essence, it's an exercise that we take C-suite through in order to think about what is the business impact of the model how do I prove the different KPIs? What is the process that needs to happen across uncommon stakeholders in order to make this come to life? Um, really being able to address this again from the get-go is absolutely key. Do people have models of their business that are um, clear enough to be able to be articulate about business impact, especially at these larger organizations? Yes and no. I think the answer is it depends. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it, it depends. It depends. Yeah. I mean, certainly we've come across, you know, a number of different organizations that are very siloed in their thinking, which is why I sort of underscored the uncommon stakeholders and making sure that you're really getting enough people bought into the vision as to why and how in order to really make a difference within that business. Yeah, silos have come up over and over and over again in my shows in terms of uh, being one, one leg of the stool of the evil troika of troika. Cu culture, <laughs> culture, politics, and silos. Um, we're we're, we're going to come back and talk about ethics very specifically here uh, after our uh, after our next break. Um, let me let me go ahead and, and take that now. You're listening to the North Star. I'm William Ulrich. We're discussing incorporating AI and cognitive computing into business strategy with my guest Phaedra Bueno Diris. You can contact Phaedra at p b o i n o d i at us ibm.com. We'll be right back after a short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Your organization is spending seven, eight, or even nine figures annually on transformation programs. And you're questioning the bottom line business value. You were told not to worry. We've engaged the best system integrators and they said all is well. Has your IT organization become a black box where money goes in, but nothing comes out? Tactical Strategy Group's William Ulrich has seen every side of this story, from upfront happy talk to painful post-mortems. Find out what's really going on. Visit tacticalstrategygroup.com and ask about TSG's Transformation Oversight Service. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Are you having trouble articulating your strategic objectives? Not sure if your program investments are aligned to your strategic vision? 
Wondering why your six, seven, and eight-figure program investments seem to evaporate into thin air, even as your business teams are left to add more people, take on more risk, and take heat from unhappy customers? Tactical Strategy Group's William Ulrich can help ensure that your strategic objectives translate into sustainable, successful investments. For more information, visit our website at tacticalstrategygroup.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to the North Star. If you have a question or comment about the program, please send an email to wmmulrich at tsgconsultinginc.com. That's wmmulrich at tsgconsultinginc.com. Now, back to the North Star. Here again is William Ulrich. Welcome back to the North Star. I'm William Ulrich. We are discussing incorporating AI and cognitive computing into business strategy with my guest, Phaedra Boinodiris. Uh, so we were chatting at break about the um, role of diversity and inclusivity in, um, in, in, in getting your AI program uh, matured. Can you uh, comment some more on that, Phaedra? Yes, yes, you had, you had just closed talking about how you're seeing some repeating, repeating, repeating themes in various uh, shows of yours and how uh, data, data silos kept, you know, being, being one of those recurring themes. And I, I just wanted to make the point, I had mentioned uncommon stakeholders before with emphasis. And in essence, what I mean to say is, that when an organization is having conversations about trust in data, it is critically important. I, I mentioned the importance of having diverse and inclusive teams of data scientists also think about diverse and inclusive stakeholders. Like this would be a fantastic opportunity to include your chief diversity and inclusivity officer as part of those conversations. Mm -hmm. So in effect, their changing or evolving role could be not only to work on ensuring they're recruiting a diverse set of employees and incorporating mm. values as part of the organization with respect to DEI, but also really and effectively championing diversity, equity, inclusivity in the data itself. Because in effect, our bias, like let's say you're 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 tra training people about things like unconscious bias within your organization, mm -hmm. which is something that a chief diversity inclusivity officer might do. That same unconscious bias that may affect how you and I work together certainly can proliferate into the very data we're using to train our AI models. Mm. So that kind of training really needs to extend into the work product that we create. Mm. Okay. Um, so I want to talk some more about ethics. We, we, have, we have addressed it a little bit here and um, I want to just make sure we're on the same page with uh, how you define ethics. Yes, in essence, it's a, a system of moral principles and techniques mm. intended to inform the development of the responsible use of artificial intelligence. Ah, excellent. Um, and that's good. So um, some context here. Uh, you've been talking a lot about incorporating ethics. Do we need to have those ethical, those ethics, those principles uh, in place as we put together and, and launch our AI strategies? 
Yes, 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 please. For anybody (laughs) listening, for anybody listening, do not wait till the end to address this. This is a road and AI ethics, ethics must be addressed. Data ethics, tech ethics must be addressed at the very onset of a project, the very onset, at the, at the point where you're actually imagining it in your minds. That's when you need to be immediately talking about ethics and, and using ethical frameworks. And you've, you've, you had said um, earlier to me that, that ethics gets included at the back end, almost as an afterthought. I worry times. about that. I, I do yeah. worry about that. Yes. And, and you can see, you know, the results, you know, just by watching the news, it, it, there could be not just individual harm, not just societal harm, but, you know, uh, reputation mm. loss, uh, litigation, uh, lack of trust in the company or the brand or the organization. So everything is at stake. They, they seem like a huge, huge risk factors that organizations may not understand it when they, on the onset, when they look into the, when they start looking at AI, uh, because some of the things you mentioned, there's real stories out there that that these issues have happened to companies, right? Yeah, absolutely true. Absolutely true. And, and I don't want organizations to do this out of just fear. (laughs) Like (laughs) it's important, but also you want to do it because it's the right thing to do. And I think also by establishing a culture within your organization that doesn't view compliance and all of these things that I've described to you as a hurdle, but embraces it like a badge of honor. That that's in essence what is really key that they're proudly standing behind the technology because it is not hurting people. It is truly recognizing all kinds of different populations and really being used to help augment human intelligence. So again, we've seen uh, the situation where the void of ethics uh, emerging as, you know, these can be public things, but it's a great point not to look at it as a a badge of fear. Um, You're pursuing a degree in AI and ethics. Can you give us a little more insight to that? Yes, I, I am. Through the European Union, thanks to the University College Dublin, it's, it's a fantastic program. It's a practice-based program. Uh, I still have a couple of years to go. My, the focus of my dissertation is on that culture aspect. It's the socio part of the mm. socio-technological challenge. And the reason why I'm doing it really is because it's the intersection of social justice and technology. So it's, it's certainly very near and dear to my heart. Can you uh, comment on the cultural considerations here that were that you've been talking about they think you talked about diversity inclusivity but are there other cultural bigger cultural issues i mentioned like you know establishing a culture where it's not seen as a hurdle mm-hmm. creating okay. things like the center of excellence incorporating design thinking early so you can think about unintended consequences like all of these things uh, you know get sort of mashed up into culture um also I think, you know, when, when thinking about how to set this up for your own, own organization, I'll, I'll give you an example of what we've done at IBM. So we've established five pillars. So five okay. areas that are, are really required in order to earn trust in AI. Yeah, we've talked a lot about things like bias. That's fairness. Like, can you trust the AI to be fair towards you, irrespective of who you are and where you come from? So fairness is one. Transparent, meaning are you being told that an AI model is being used, you know, where can you learn more information about that model? Uh, Explainability, this means 
what's, what data is being used? Where did that data come from in order to curate that model? So data lineage and provenance, what right. methods, what expertise, like all of that is under explainability. And there's many layers to that depending on what your level of interest is. Mm-hmm. And then there's robustness. I mentioned, like, can you can you trick it, right? Is it safe to right. so that safeguarded against being tricked? Uh, and then, of course, does it protect people's data privacy? Right. These are you know five pillars, five areas that we've doubled down at IBM, and in fact, we've we've created in addition. I mentioned people, process, tools. So with respect to tools, we've developed a whole bunch of tools across these five pillars and donated a bunch of them to the open source community via the mm. Linux Foundation. That is that is actually excellent. I'm, I'm glad you really brought that up, that, that you put those out into the open source community. It's uh, um, it's good news when when we when we do hear those types of things. Uh, the uh, the the five pillars are um, uh, sound like they're really hitting some some of the real key areas. Um, one of the things that we see is we talk about a lot of AI rolling with customers. Uh, AI plays a role too internally, in um, maybe picking up and starting to do some of the work that maybe employees are doing today. And maybe the AI is still learning or it's at a rudimentary level. But as AI evolves and people are starting to use it in organizations uh, and, and they start to um, do more, in other words, we've got more machine learning and deep learning that's starting to do some of the work of some of the employees that are in there. Uh, are there consideration, ethical considerations about, you know, looking inward about your own employees and how, you know, maybe your organization is evolving into more of a, um, a mechanic, mechanical or mechanistic um, sort of environment for people where automation is starting to take more and more of the roles? I'm glad you asked this question. I, I truly am. And the, which is why I've been reemphasizing education a lot. <laughs> so. Yeah. One of our AI ethics principles, one of them, is that the clear purpose of artificial intelligence must be to augment human intelligence, mm-hmm. not to replace it. Right. But I would also add, we as a society must double down. We must double down on our education initiatives. And my biggest concern right now is that higher ed, too late. Even high school, too late. Too late. Mm. Like we need to be talking about the fundamental principles, the fundamentals of artificial intelligence really early on. Even things like incorporating tech ethics learning into K through five. Like we need to be doing this now. We need to be advocating for this now. So you, uh, I think you've done you've done work. You were talking about some doing work in the education field and. Um, have you worked with, uh, with, with folks below the, you said, I think you work with folks below the kids, kids below the, that level, right? They're down at that level. Is that right? Uh, I worked the medical Minecraft story was for high school kids. Okay. That was for high school. But um, as I mentioned, I think there's, there's components of what we're talking about today that need to be addressed and, and taught early on. And I'll give you a wonderful example of how, I've playfully incorporated some of this, this kind of learning to even younger kids. Mm-hmm. So 
I'm a, a board member for one of the local science museums, um, Marbles, and we were asked to do a Kids Code event. And I decided to co-create an AI-powered Harry Potter sorting hat with the local high school kids. And um, it's just, we're just like the book, right, where you're saying something, and there's a natural language processor that will parse what you're saying and put you in a Hogwarts house. So I wanted to rig the hat. I rigged it because I wanted to teach about AI ethics. Mm. And I rigged the hat such that if any of my kids were to put the hat on, and I have four of my own children, and I knew they would be there, and I guessed what they would say, I rigged the hat such that if they put the hat on, if they said something I guess they would say that was unique about them, it would put them in a Slytherin. And we were up on stage, and my 15-year-old at the time puts her hat, the hat on, and she says something. It puts her in the Slytherin, just like you know the voice from the movie Slytherin. Right. And she crosses her arms and she glares at me and she says, "Mom, you rigged the hat, right?" And I said, "Let this be a lesson to you: never trust an AI that's not fully explainable and transparent. You should be able to ask the hat." What data did you? And it's amazing using something like like Harry Potter as a means to relay just how important this is. I think is is a, a, a great tool. Yeah, and for for those listening who don't know, they're Harry Potter. Slytherin is not the house you necessarily want to be in. Uh, just <laughs> just to let <laughs> I've people been know. Corrected on that, by yeah. the way. In in Ireland, I was told in no uncertain terms that there's nothing wrong with Slytherin. So Whoa, okay, <laughs> okay. My uh, my daughter um, was about the same age as as uh, the Harry Potter kids when the when the whole thing started up. So we we grew up with that. So you're really um, we we want to get tech ethics into education, uh, and we want to do it. Um, uh, you know, we want to start below the high school level and, and actually start getting it into the, the lower levels. And games are a great way to do that. Yeah, games and play, of course, of course, of course. But I, I would reiterate, and in, I think in closing, one of the key things I want to impart with respect to education is that this, what we're describing today, should not be material that is just curated for those students that self-categorize as data scientists, as coders, as machine learning scientists when they're in higher ed. No matter what you wanna be when you grow up, you wanna be a fashion designer or the leader of agriculture for your region, you must understand the fundamentals of artificial intelligence. And even irrespective of that, because you're a citizen of the world, decisions are being made that directly affect your life using AI. So you must be cognizant and you must have a basic understanding of what's actually happening here. Great closing method message. I'm going to have to have you back. My guest today has been Phaedra Buenoderis of IBM. Uh, we've been discussing incorporating AI and cognitive computing into business strategy. Uh, you can reach her at PBOI. N-O-D-I at us.ibm.com or on LinkedIn. Uh, you can find links to my material, a, a lot of Phaedra's publications and works on my radio show page at my website. Thank you for joining us today, Phaedra. Um, and, and my guest next week will be Dr. Brian Cameron of Penn State University. We'll be discussing strategy execution, preparing business leaders of the future. You've been listening to The North Star. I'm your host, William Ulrich. You can contact me by email, LinkedIn, or my website. Thanks for joining me today, and we'll all see you all next week. Thank you for tuning in this week to the North Star. 
Please join host William Ulrich for another edition of the program next Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll continue our discussion on strategy execution then. 